With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome in to the latest edition of the show before the show from MILB.com. It is August 7th, and uh, we're in the final stretch of the regular season in 2019. My name is Tyler Mond. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. Excited to try to go professional this week. On the, I know, yeah. On the it's show. all very buttoned it's up. very um, weird. It's very yeah. strange. Um, what's uh, what's going on out there? How's uh, it's been? I know there's like a uh, tsunami bearing down on you from uh, rain standpoint today, from what yeah. I saw on Twitter. The Mets played an afternoon game, finished, and the radar was like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to get a storm from the day after tomorrow. Yeah, uh, it hasn't arrived yet, but if you hear crashing thunder in the background those are not sound effects those are actually it's not ben just standing behind me like flexing one of those aluminum sheets (laughs) um it could very well pass garbage can lids together yeah but it's funny you mentioned the mets because it it, the kind of prevailing feeling around here is just it's it's a mets town again even though the yankees have one of the best records in base baseball it's everybody coming out i I don't want to say out of the woodwork because Mets fans always let you know how they feel about like things. Andrew Batiferano always hanging out at Mets yes. games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the second they started going on this run, it, it's funny to just watch all these Mets fans being like, I feel optimistic. I don't know what optimism feels like. <laughs> I forgot about this. It's like, you guys were just in the World Series a couple of years yeah. ago. You should yeah. have been this good all along. Right. Not this good. Not winning like 12 out of 13 or whatever run they're on now. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, it is kind of exciting to see uh, a team that decided to be a buyer, basically, at the deadline. And we we talked a lot about the deadline last week, going out and getting Marcus Stroman, a move we thought was more geared for 2020, um, to start winning now. And that's what allowed them to hold on to Zach Wheeler and hold on to Noah Syndergaard. And uh, that NL wild card, I know, Tyler, you might not be wanting to look at those standings much anymore, but... That NL wildcard race is going to be insane. And, I, and I'm excited to see teams like the Mets, like the Reds, like the Giants, teams that we didn't think would be going for it a couple weeks ago, at least competitive for a few more weeks. I think that makes for better baseball. Uh, a few points. One, Andrew, our good buddy who also writes for the site, and you can follow on Twitter at Andrew at Bat with two T's, which I find the most uh, entertaining and clever of all of our Twitter handles. Uh, Andrew and I work together for a, a baseball writing website. And we uh, never talk baseball. We talk exclusively about Red Dead Redemption 2. And it is <laughs> one of the best friendships that I have because of that. Um, secondly, yeah, that uh, <laughs> that attitude from Mets fans, the only fan base that I think I have less patience with in that um, sort of attitude is Royals fans. And I understand things have gotten rough for the Royals. I get it. But, like, the woe is us, back to the same old Royals – you went to two World Series and you won one within like the last five years. Like my sympathy is not really there for you. I get it; it's rough, but like you have reinforcements on the way. There's some fun talent in that system. Um, you know, you got Bobby Witt, you got uh, Brady Singer, who I know this season, you know, didn't have a hasn't had the most dominant stretch in Double A, but like Jackson Coar has been fantastic lately. I don't know. Chris Bubich. Uh, Chris Bubich is another one. Yeah, been um, very good. They got some fun dudes in that system. Um, and third. Yeah, no, I don't want to talk about the NL Wild. <laughs> I mean, like, coming from a franchise that actually has never really given you any reason to ever be optimistic uh, oh, of as course. a fan that's, base. Yeah, that's how it always works is you guys are the ones complaining all the time. But I have a legit reason to complain. <laughs> always. So. Always. It's, you know, 27 years of, uh, of franchise history of, you know, not great, Bob. <laughs> so anyway, let's dive into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. Uh, thanks for joining us wherever you found us. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere else you find your shows, as well as 
tracking down our past episodes at MILB.com slash podcast. And we will start things off on three strikes this week with a look at uh, the final month of the regular season. Sam Dykstra wrote a uh, column, a tool shed piece for the site today and uh, opens with this line. As of Monday, there were only four weeks remaining in the minor league regular season. So we're headed into this final stretch. Uh, most teams wrap things up on Labor Day, which is September 2nd this year. Uh, there are some stragglers that finish off later on in that week, but um, really we're, we're down to it in this last month. Among some of the best prospects in baseball, Sam, this column covers who could use the best August and there are some really interesting names in this kind of the headliner is Forrest Whitley the Astros right-handed pitcher who's had a rocky season this year uh, but Joe Adele the Angels outfield prospect is in there Alex Kirilov the Twins outfield prospect who has really started to come along um, give us a rundown of this list because this is a, a really good topic yeah and then one thing I wanted to do with this column this year is point out not just guys who are have had rough seasons and really need a strong August just to have us think positive thoughts going into the offseason. But there are a lot of guys, Joe Adele being one of them you mentioned, who could use a strong August to potentially push for the major leagues. Uh, you know, Joe Adele had some serious leg injuries coming into the year, uh, an ankle, a, a hamstring injury during spring training, didn't come back until late May, and has shown all the regular skills that he did before the injuries. So that's been comforting to the point where he is now at AAA Salt Lake, one step away from the majors. You know, since the Angels drafted him in the first round, they've always had dreams of, hey, maybe someday this guy will play next to Mike Trout. Now that dream is as close to a reality as, as it's been, and it's probably even like a, a bigger dream than they had when they first took him, um, just given the way he's shown plus skills at pretty much every one of the five tools. Um, so, you know, this this next month for him at Salt Lake is basically a de facto audition. Now, we think of that with pretty much any player at AAA or even AA. It's a, it's a de facto audition every time you're out there for a major league job, but especially for Adele. I know there are a lot of other concerns that go into this and would the Angels want to start his clock? I think we might be seeing that wave cresting a little bit. Um, you know, guys like Fernando Tatis Jr. and uh, starting opening day this year, you want to keep your top talent happy and getting Adele the chance to play next to Trout, getting those guys comfortable playing with each other, uh, you know, seeing what he can do at the major league level. They did that with Trout when he was a, you know, a prospect. He got a couple games in 2011, didn't go great, came back in 2012, won rookie of the year very famously. Um, so maybe they allowed that to happen with Adele if he can have a strong month of August. Uh, one thing I want to point out, though, obviously AAA is, is much different than any other year basically in history. Uh, there's a chance Adele could put up some good numbers at AAA, but they might not be good enough to push him to the majors. So if he's got like an 850 OPS in his first time at AAA, you might think, that's pretty good. Let him see the majors. And, and the Angels might be like, well, actually, that's league average, and we want him to be knocking down the door. We want him to be doing better than league average. It's something very to keep difficult in mind. to evaluate what AAA stats mean this year, especially in the Pacific yeah. Coast League. And especially at Salt Lake, which is right. a, an extreme hitter's park within an extreme hitter's league, within an extreme hitter's level uh, in 2019. So something to just keep an eye out with that. But as you mentioned, Forrest Whitley's another one of those. Somebody we thought was maybe the top pitching prospect in baseball coming into the year uh, allowed 33 earned runs over 24 in the third innings at AAA Round Rock to begin the year. He ends up going on the IL with some shoulder fatigue. He's been working his way back up, um, starting to hit the mid-90s again, showing signs of him being himself in this column. You'll see a, a, a lengthy at-bat. Uh, in his last start with Double A Corpus Christi, but it actually ends on a really good breaker, which I think is a positive sign for him because there have been some reports that his stuff has come down a little bit. He used to be somebody who could show multiple plus pitches. Now he's starting to show the velocity again. Maybe the breaking stuff is coming back as well. Um, but that Triple A return is kind of looming in August, and uh, you know he's going to have to get used to throwing the the Triple A ball again. And I know in interviews. Uh, he's brought up that it was really difficult to pitch with that ball and and get his stuff to work. So, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to be pushing for a major league job in the same way Adele was. But, 
you know, he still needs to keep his stock high and it, it'll certainly make him feel better. It'll make the Astros feel better. If he can get back to round rock, get maybe two or three starts under his belt that are quality outings, not necessarily quality starts in that them being six innings, three earned runs, but just quality results back. And, uh, you know, maybe he'll push for, uh, the majors again next year. He's only 21. It's not a big worry. We, we put him on the fast track and that time, Sometimes I can feel worrisome when guys take a step back. Development isn't always linear. It has not been for Forrest Whitley, but it would definitely be good if he could end on a better note in August. And hey, maybe if he does really well enough and you know his health is good and he can throw her deeper into outings, maybe the Astros say like, hey, your stuff really is one of the best in the system. Let's kind of use you the way we used Josh James last year, throw you into some relief roles, maybe get you a start if we can in September and just see whether you're worthy of the postseason roster. Um, you know, Given all the time off he had this summer, there's probably a couple extra innings in, in that arm, but he has to show that the shoulder is fully back. Um, so that's some things we'll be watching. Other ones to quickly point out, Jesus Luzardo is coming back up through the A system. He's somebody we thought would be potentially in, in the majors in the spring. That hasn't worked out for him. He's had shoulder issues and lat strains that have put him back on the IL. Uh, he's scheduled to next take the mound on Saturday with Class A Advanced Stockton. Uh, hopefully he can get back to AAA Las Vegas by the end of the month. And it, kind of what we were mentioning before with Whitley, I think Luzardo if he shows his health is back, if he shows his stuff is back, definitely will be with Oakland in September. Um, yeah, they they are in the midst of a kind of three-team wild card race right now between the Indians, the Rays, and the A's. Uh, and they're going to need all the talent they can get. Luzardo, when healthy, is definitely one of the best pitchers on that team. When rosters expand, he should be there trying to get some of those innings. I, I would expect that to happen if the A's are really going to push for a wild card spot. Uh, Carter Keboom kind of in a similar spot in so so much as, you know, the Nats are going for, you know, one of those two wild card spots right now. Uh, I think they were tied last time I checked with the Phillies. Uh, right now they're one game ahead of the Phillies actually for the NL wild, the first one NL wild card spot. Um, he's definitely going to be back there. He's already on the 40 man. He's already seen the majors at the beginning of the year. But he had some real offensive struggles. He had some real defensive struggles. Uh, he'll, he'll need to show that the bat is ready to get major at-bats and not just pinch-hitting duties off the bench just to kind of have him around in September. Uh, so, so these are some of the guys I lay out, other names in there. Davey Garcia is somebody I mentioned. Logan Allen in his first month with the Cleveland Indians. Nico Horner, one level below those guys at double-A uh, kind of needing a stronger month after some struggles in July. Uh, check out the tool shed and uh, go through all these names more in depth there. Uh, strike two this week, which uh, kind of plays off of the same concept. Um, guys who could finish strong and in the strike two premise, finish in the top 100 prospects going into 2020. Who right now, um, among guys who are not top 100 prospects, should fans be excited to watch while they still can? Yeah. So again, this kind of comes back to there's only four weeks left. Um, there are su certain prospects who, you know, the top 100 names you all know, I'm sure. Uh, and, and you're always going to be searching for them in box scores. These I'm going to mention two guys, Tyler, I'm sure you might have a couple as well. Um, but two, actually, I'll mention three real quick. Uh, these are three that aren't top 100, but you should be following them. I'm not saying they're going to be top 100 this offseason, although some of them might. Um, but, you know, they're not going to get called up in, in September. Uh, you're not going to get much more of a chance to talk about them. So watch them now while you can, because otherwise, when you're going into the offseason and thinking like, oh, that guy should be top 100, you can say last time we saw them in August and September, uh, these, this is what they looked like. So one guy I want to mention real quick is Twins number nine prospect, uh, John Duran who has had a stellar season between Class A Advance and Double A Pensacola. Just moved up to Pensacola two starts ago. Has struck out 11 batters and in 11 innings there. Uh, had 95 strikeouts and in 78 innings at Class A Advance Fort Myers. Uh, the fastball is plus-plus. He's somebody who can touch 100 uh, at times. The curveball has been pretty good. The changeup is developing. Um, but the package is coming all together in really, really exciting ways. I I've heard some rumblings that he could – 
be somebody who we're going to be talking about a lot in the offseason. That velocity is always going to play, but the way he's been getting swings and misses this year has been really exciting. Speaking of swings and misses, uh, kind of a breakout prospect in the Detroit Tigers system is Tarek Skubal, who was a ninth-round pick uh, coming out of Seattle University last year. Uh, And in this Tiger system in which we've always said is so loaded with arms, he's actually moved past some of these guys. He's moved past the Alex Fados, the Kyle Funkhausers, uh, who are top draft picks to the point where now he's the number four prospect in that system. Uh, He's got 147 strikeouts in 104 and third innings this year between Class A Advanced Lakeland and Double A Erie. Even since moving up to uh, Erie in the Eastern League, he continues to bring K's. It's really been interesting uh, to see him kind of not overshadow, you know, Casey Mize necessarily, but to the point where four of his last five starts have been double-digit K's. He struck out 13 over six one-hit innings on July 19th. Um, you know, as if the Tigers needed more pitching depth, he has certainly brought that to the table with a plus fastball and above average curveball and slider. Changeup's not quite there, but. To have three above-average pitches, that's certainly going to work at double-A. Let's see how far he can take this. What can he do the more he sees double-A hitters, the more they see him? uh, That'll be really fascinating. You're going to want to watch him just kind of have an opinion on where does he rank amongst some of these other arms, the the Matt Mannings, the Casey Mises, like I mentioned. Uh, So that'll be really interesting to watch him. And one other I want to throw out real quick, a guy I talked to uh, earlier in the week is number five, Dodgers prospect Josiah Gray. Uh, Gray, as some of you will remember, was involved in that offseason blockbuster that sent Alex Wood and Yasiel Puig and Matt Kemp and Kyle Farmer to Cincinnati uh, and Homer Bailey kind of as a salary dump back to L.A. But in order to take on that salary, the Dodgers also took on Gray and Jeter Downs. Gray was not much of a pitcher in college. He kind of transitioned to the mound went to the Cape as a closer, showed some dominant stuff, became a starter, ended up being the 72nd overall pick in the 2018 draft. Now has climbed three levels. He started out at Class A Great Lakes. Now he's at Double A Tulsa. Has put up stellar numbers everywhere he's gone. Uh, I encourage people to check out the piece I wrote about him because he's just said, hey, listen, I, I've always been confident in my stuff uh, since I became a pitcher, since I knew what this could do. And I hope I'm showing the Dodgers that I can roll with the punches, that I can do whatever they – put in front of me I can accomplish it and put up results not just show stuff but show results he's certainly done that so far he was named the Texas League pitcher of the week already he's only made four starts there he's already standing out at that level uh he has really good control tried to talk to him about that he's he just said you know I I know the odds are always going to be for me if I put it in the zone so that's what I do I just try to focus on hitting the mitt uh, he's only walked 23 batters in 114 innings this year couple that with 126 strikeouts so he's getting the swings and misses uh he, he's noticing his stuff isn't getting that same swing and miss rate at double a and the numbers kind of back that up a little bit but he's still being competitive he's finding other ways to pitch uh you're going to want to watch him do that the further he, he goes with the drillers obviously the, the dodgers have had so many player development success stories this year uh gray is right on the cusp of being the next one and if he can end with a really strong august we might be talking about him differently uh is there anybody you're going to be keeping an eye on tyler or somebody who's like i don't know you've covered a lot recently that you're excited to see in the final month josiah gray was actually the guy who i was going to pick um especially because i've been basically the gavin lux beat writer for the last like month <laughs> so i haven't gotten a chance to write or think about anybody else um one thing to to note about him and i have not seen a a reason for this but he was placed on the temporary inactive list as of a couple of days ago right after his most recent start uh with double a tulsa against northwest arkansas he was great in that game six inning three hits one run seven strikeouts um but he did go on that list on the 5th of august so so presumably could just be, um, you know, kind of a paper move or, or something that's sort of unrelated to um, to baseball stuff. It's obviously not a health thing. But, um, yeah, Josiah Gray has been a, a fascinating guy to watch so far this season. Another guy who I've always been um, fascinated by and I think is now starting to get to the point where people have to take him seriously. And I believe at one time was a back end, like, number 99 or 100 top 100 prospect. He no longer is, but I think he could get there again 
is 18-year-old Blue Jays right-handed pitching prospect Eric Pardino, who this season uh, has only made a handful of appearances combined, uh, but he's been with Class A Lansing for his last six outings, started the season in the GCL. Um, he's still so young, so I think they just got him started late um, to keep him, obviously, in extended spring training and, and doing all the things to get him ready for uh, for this season. But um, so far in his seven outings combined between the GCL and Lansing, 1.64 ERA, 32 strikeouts and 33 innings pitched, uh, an opponent's average of 195, a whip of 1.09. Uh, we've talked about him before. People might remember the fact that he pitched uh, as a 15-year-old, I believe, for Brazil uh, in the World Baseball Classic qualifier a few seasons back, um, back in 2016, at the end of that 2016 uh, professional season. And uh, he's a he's a fun prospect. He's not a big guy. He's only 5'10", 155, um, but he really has good feel for where he is in his career uh he's got a fastball that can hit the mid 90s and uh especially now getting a chance to work against class a hitters full season class a guys and doing that at 19 years old and doing it successfully um prospects like that are always fascinating to me and um we've seen feels like a lot of those guys go through the midwest league in recent years where you'll see some of the best prospects in that league at 17 or 18 and 19 um the guy who always jumps out to me in that conversation was julio arias who i think was 16 when he was there yeah i remember when that when he started yeah and it was just like oh by the way there's a 16 year old pitching for great lakes today and it's or yeah, for Great Lakes. Yeah, and we were just yeah. like, oh, what? Like, wait a minute. What? Is that even possible? Uh, um, one, one thing yeah. I want to add on Pardino real quick. He did have an elbow issue in right, spring. that's what it was. Yeah, that they were worried about, but it obviously it's really worked like out okay. A, a full-on injury. I think it was more of a, a precautionary thing that they had kept him shut down for a little while. Um, something like that, if I remember right. Yeah, it was, um, it was described as tightness. Right, that's what uh, it was. Yeah, which, you know, elbows are always always worrisome, especially for young guys, especially yeah. for smaller guys like him. Um, but it, it seems like they have avoided surgery and anything additionally scary. So, yeah, no, Eric Pardino is one of my – I think we're going to be talking about him for, yeah. for years to come. He just needs to be on the field more. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and strike three this week, the uh, Atlanta organization got a big bump of its top talent to Triple A Gwinnett, led by Christian Pache, who was the top prospect in that organization, the outfielder um, who has been bumped up to Triple A. Uh, Drew Waters is up there as well, who is Atlanta's number two prospect, and Ian Anderson, uh, right-handed pitcher. Waters joining Pache in the outfield. The top three guys in that system now members of the Gwinnett organization. The debut. Did not go great uh, for Ian Anderson on the mound. He went three innings and uh, and left that game with a loss in his uh, first AAA outing. But that's coming off of 21 starts with AA Mississippi, in which he was terrific with a 2.68 ERA uh, through 111 innings. He struck out 147 batters, by the way, in 111 innings at AA. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty – I mean, that system has been churning out talent in recent years. For all those three guys to make that jump basically at the same exact time, um, that's a, a pretty exciting next step in uh in the atlanta system yeah and, and uh it was kind of interesting the way news kind of got out about this i think on sunday uh people were reporting that pache was going up to AAA, and that's kind of a move that i had been waiting on i did a column a couple of weeks ago saying like these will be the next guys to move up and i thought pache would be one of them um just to kind of get him and waters out of each other's shadows uh, you, you know, the dream is to have them playing together in Atlanta, but they're both really good outfielders. They're both capable of playing center field. Pache might be the best out, outfielder we have in minor league baseball when it comes to defensive work. Um, and I, I would have thought they wanted both to get more time in center. So Pache, who played a little bit of double A last year, would move up first. So we hear news of him going up Sunday and then Monday, the official transactions come in. And oh, by the way, Waters and Anderson are also coming up. Um, so Braves system continues to push these guys aggressively. Uh, it, it's exciting to, to see them make that jump. I think, you know, I'd say I thought. Pache would move first, but Waters probably had the better offensive year at Double A Mississippi. Uh, he was hitting 319. He led the league in doubles. He led the league in a whole bunch of different categories, actually, uh, but also had five homers, 13 stolen bases, and 847 OPS, which might not sound great, but was one of the best in the Southern League, which is kind of a pitcher's league to begin with. Uh, Pache, 
a little bit of a breakout this year for him offensively, especially when it comes to power. Power was his most questionable tool on the board, and he's hit 11 home runs this year in 104 games at at Double A Mississippi. So seeing these guys continue to pair together, I guess you know that that tells us about the Braves' hopes for their long-term future. Um, you know, the idea of Waters, Ender Inciarte, and Christian Pache all playing the outfield, also Ronald Acuna, like you make you pick your three and it's going to be really difficult for a ball to hit the grass uh, between those guys, how that'll all shake out. We'll have to see in the years to come. And obviously Austin Riley has some outfield experience this year, although he started to struggle of late, but um, you know, these guys are giving the Braves options. And when they were going through their rebuild, this is the, what they wanted to have happen. They wanted to get to a time where, Hey, this is going to be awkward because we have too many, uh, outfielders for only three spots. Uh, we'll have to see how they tackle AAA. Um, it's only going to be a month. I fully expect both of them to be back in Gwinnett to start next year. Uh, same with Ian Anderson, who, you know, at the beginning of the year, we thought this Gwinnett rotation and the Mississippi rotation were one of the most loaded in baseball. Uh, some of the shine has come off. Some of those guys, Kyle Wright has really struggled this year in making his stuff translate uh, to that new AAA ball and to the majors. Bryce Wilson has dropped out the top 100. Colby Allard just got traded to Texas. Uh, so Ian Anderson comes up to Gwinnett. He, this is his chance to kind of become the ace of that staff. Didn't work out, like you mentioned, Tyler, in that debut. He ended up walking four and giving up six hits in three innings. Uh, got charged with five runs, so he currently has a 15.0 ERA. Not great. Um, but he did get five strikeouts in those three innings. Um, the fastball is going to play anywhere he goes. The curveball, there's a lot of talk about it being a low spin rate curveball, but the action on it has worked pretty well. And the changeup is, is above average. And, uh, you know, the way he kind of keeps the ball and hides it at, coming out of a six foot three frame with pretty good extension uh, can be really tough for guys to hit. Uh, the control had improved a little bit this year, I would say. Um, but. To see it take that step back, maybe that's getting used to the AAA ball. Maybe that's going against more disciplined hitters. Uh, it's something we're going to have to keep watching here as he makes more starts going deeper into August. But this will be a good test for him. Uh, he has, you know, number two, number three starting pitcher you know, ceiling, I think, if, if everything clicks for him. And now he has a chance to show it at a level when a lot of guys have been tested uh, this year. joined this week on the minor league baseball podcast the show before the show by number 10 reds prospect the newest number 10 reds prospect uh, in the cincinnati system uh jameson hannah calling in from florida with the daytona to- daytona tortugas uh jameson how you doing doing good good, doing good. Well, thank- yeah no thank you for joining us so one thing we, you know we wanted to talk to you about is you know, last week was the trade deadline. We did this whole trade deadline show. It was a whole big part of the baseball atmosphere, obviously. You find out you're traded from the Oakland A's to the Cincinnati Reds as part of the Tanner Roark deal. Kind of tell us your trade story. How did you find out, and what were the, the couple days after that like? Oh, man, well, I mean, you hear all about trades, but you never uh, kind of know how to take it on uh, until you have your first but. You know, I just had some roommates come busted in my room and said they uh, saw some stuff on Twitter about me being traded. You know, the first thing I did was get on my phone and try to try to look it up, and uh, there it was. But I mean, it was it was a great opportunity I had with Oakland, and uh, I'm looking to, for bigger things in Cincinnati. But I uh, can't put the uh, Oakland A's enough for this opportunity, and uh, happy to be a Red now. Yeah, and, and you talked about how you kind of approach it, and you don't know what it's going to be like until you go through it. What was what was that instant reaction of, you know, you, you got traded so early in your career. You were a second round pick last year. Now you're on your second organization. Yeah. Kind of what? How were you able to process it? Uh, I mean, you hear about it from different guys, and you know, you kind of don't know what to do at first, especially with it being your first trade, but. You just kind of assume that you have to drop everything and uh, move teams, and that's actually how how it really goes. You just kind of pack up everything, and uh, you're on to the next. So, I mean, it's it's good to be wanted, but also, uh, you know, it's it's sad to to leave some uh, some teammates and some of the coaches behind. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like I said earlier, I'm just happy for the experience. Mm. 
And when you said you talked to some of the guys, who who did you seek out or where did you get um, any guidance on this? You know, were, were there teammates in Stockton? Were there other people you reached out to? How did you get, get kind of like the words of wisdom you needed to go through a trade? Yeah, uh, so I've had some teammates in Stockton that kind of have gone through it uh, and definitely coaches because they, they've been around the game and they kind of know how this works. So, I mean, just trying to pick – pick uh, some ears from different people and trying to understand this process and they gave me some good information but it's, uh, it's tough to say goodbye then. Mm. What, what do you feel like was the biggest piece of advice you received? Uh, it's the same game you know uh, don't try to do too much it's in, uh, stick to the player that you are so uh, kind of holding that keeping that with me is uh, definitely a big part of my game and you know I'm just going to go out there and do what I do best and uh, hopefully the the Reds definitely like it. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they got you for a reason. They, you know, that's one part of the trade, right, is that they went out and sought you coming back. Um, but you, you touched up a little bit on it in terms of just the logistics of a trade. And it's especially weird for you, somebody's going from Stockton, California, to Daytona, Florida. You, you couldn't yeah. have tra- traded coasts any more than you did. Um, what were those couple days like that? What, what was that like? And what was it like getting settled in Daytona? How long of a process did that take? Or are you not even settled yet? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, the first time was pretty much all travel. I think I traveled for about nine to ten hours going coast to coast. But I mean, other than that, I like to think I'm all settled in. Just had to trade some green and gold for some red black. So, <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's the same game. And, yeah, it definitely takes some time getting you to uh, different players in the organization, but they've uh, welcomed me with open arms. The coaching staff is great, and I'm I'm happy to be here. Mm. And it is early days still, obviously, but what kind of instruction or guidance have you gotten uh, from the Reds so far? What were some of like the worst or the the first words you heard uh, from the front office or coaching staff uh, once you were welcomed in, into the uh, Cincinnati system? Yeah, well, they're definitely the, the kind of player that I was. And, you know, first, first time in Daytona, they just kind of told me that I'll just do my thing. They know what I'm capable of and don't want to put too much pressure on them. So that definitely was a, a big relief. So, you know, I just try to keep that with me and just do all that I can to help this team. Hmm. And uh, one interesting thing about the trade when it went down, I feel like you've been improving as the season went on. You hit 226 in April and then certainly warmed up from there, hitting 327 in May and, and continuing on. Uh, what did you learn about yourself in that first month? Because that was the first April you had played in your pro career. Uh, what adjustments have you made as you've gone on here in 2019? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's, it's way harder to lose than uh, sports season. But, uh, you know, that, that first month of April was, was tough, but, uh, uh, I mean, baseball is a long season, so you just got to grind through it. And, you know, being as optimistic as I am, I know the, the kind of player that I am, and I know that that wasn't what I was capable of. So, I mean, just attacking each day and putting my nose down to, to get better, and uh, thankfully it was able to stop. Hmm. Did you feel like there was a turning point in, in which things started clicking, or was it your natural ability that just needed time to shine through, you think? Uh, you know, I mean – like I said, it's kind of tough to just get, get thrown in there. But, uh, you know, it comes with that definitely seeing a lot of pitches, comes with that bats, and, you know, kind of being set up with uh, mediocrity. So being able to kind of go up there with a little edge up at the plate and trying to do what I'm capable of and also not putting too much pressure on myself will definitely help turn that around. Hmm. And how is that kind of manifesting itself when you're saying putting too much pressure on yourself? Because, I mean, I I feel like that's understandable. You were a second-round pick, uh, a lot of eyes on you coming into the year. Uh, There is some pressure there. How did you ease up that pressure, or what did you do to deal with that and and able to, like we said, turn things around there starting in May? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we had a a great ball club in Stockton. So just being able to, like I said, not put too much pressure on myself and know – if there's guys in the lineup that are going to get their job done, so it's just a matter of uh, if I don't get the job done, I, have no guy, I know I have guys behind me that will do it and, and vice versa. And uh, the, one of the things, too, we talked about the logistics of going from the Cal League to the Florida State League and just in terms of travel day, but they couldn't be two more different leagues in terms of how they play either. Uh, I know you've only <laughs> got a handful of games now 
under your belt with Daytona. But what is what have you noticed so far, and what have you kind of been warned about when the FSL, you know, moving from the hitters league of the Cal League going to the FSL? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first day I got there, everybody was telling me how the ball doesn't size compared to the Cal League. So, I mean, just sticking to the player that I am, uh, and definitely a different aspect of the different leagues is the weather. You know, it's it's very hot and humid and muggy down here. So, being able to put up with that and kind of stick to my stick to my style of play definitely helped me along in this league. Hmm. And, and being a Texas guy, which place were you more comfortable in? I guess. Uh, no, they say there's humidity in Texas. I the weather in, in California is a lot better than it is here. I mean, yeah. uh, it's definitely really hot, really muggy, and uh, it'll be this afternoon shower day, so that's kind of hard to, to get through. But you know, it's just everyone goes through the weather, so got to make sure I don't let that affect me and just kind of grind through it. Mm. And what did you know about the Reds coming into this? Because you know, so much of your preparation is to become an Oakland A and try to fit their philosophy and all that. And then you have to switch organizations. And do, do you know anything about the Reds? Did you learn anything about them in the draft process or anything like that? I mean, what did you know or what were you able to bring to the table, you know, those first couple of days? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Reds had some interest in me you know, on draft day, but I mean, things don't always work out the way they want to. So, I mean, uh, you definitely don't hear about it before the trade, but uh, after the trade kind of relieves some, some stress, I would say. But, I mean, other than that, I'm happy to be a part of this organization. This organization has a lot of history, and uh, I'm excited to see how far I go in this this organization. Mm. And, and when you m- mentioned there being a little bit of stress, was it what was it like being in that Stockton clubhouse? You know, you're – you're playing for a team that is trying to contend. It's going for a wild card spot, but that means they're usually buyers at the trade deadline and prospects are kind of the currency of the trade deadline. Was that something you guys were talking about with the ports of like, Hey, any one of us could go or how did you guys kind of deal with the weeks leading up to the trade deadline? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you never, obviously, like you said, uh, prospects tend to to fly around and they're, uh, they're on the radar for the trade deadline, but, uh, we had some some good guys in Stockton, and we tried to try to keep, just keep our heads down and try to make a, a playoff push towards the end of the season. Uh, I mean, things obviously unfolded and I was able to get but I'm still pretty sure the guys down there are keeping their heads down and going to work. Hmm. And you've had to introduce yourself a couple times now. To, to new places. Stockton was a new team for you. Uh, it was your first spring training. You got introduced to the A's last year. Now you're getting introduced to the Reds and the Daytona, Daytona Tortugas. How do you introduce yourself when you come into a, a new clubhouse? And when you are asked to be a big part of the lineup, you were, you let off tonight, tonight for the Tortugas. Um, you know, what do you do to introduce yourself? What's, how does your personality kind of plug in to a new place? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of an even keel kind of guy. So, I mean, I'll make my friends here and there, but I mean we're all here for the same reason. We're all here to to win ball games and you know do our do our part to help the team win. So I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, it's definitely fun meeting new guys uh, in the clubhouse. But I, I feel like the way you play on the field, I help you uh, make some new friends as well. So like I said, just trying to do my job to help the team win and uh, let the rest kind of unfold. Hmm. And. and- Given everything else that's that's gone on, and we've talked about so much change this year, uh, I want to come back to the idea that this is your first full season. This is the first time you are trying to go from April to September uh, in pro mm-hmm. ball like this. What was your welcome to pro ball moment? Because I know last year you played at Class A short season Vermont, a couple of games, then an injury in July, end your season early. Um, now you've, you know, you've played much more. <laughs> much more you're up to 98 games this season what do you feel like was your crystallizing this is my job now moment uh definitely uh in april you know like you like we talked about earlier uh, that, that tough stretch and you know once once that was over i was kind of like hey i got a got a long way through got to put my nose down and uh, get to work and obviously try to try to play better but uh i mean other than that you know it's, you know how many games there are and you know it's a grind so you just got to attack each day and hopefully just pray for the best. <laughs> hmm. 
And I want to go back a little bit even further uh, to the draft process for you. You came out of Dallas Baptist, and I believe you were the highest position player ever selected out of Dallas Baptist. There, there's been some notable names over the years that have come out of that school baseball-wise, Chance Adams being a prospect recently uh, that I think a lot of people know. Um, but what, what was it like trying to stand out at a school like that? Because you're not at a big SEC school. You're not at some of the other you know, powerhouses, and you end up, showing up enough to be a second round pick. Um, what was it like going through the process at that school? Uh, yeah, I, I had a great three years, great experience over in uh, DBU. And, you know, uh, obviously we're, we're, like I said, it's the same game. We're trying to go out there and win ball game. So, I mean, just kind of keep your nose down and not try to let the, uh, the media and everything affect you. Uh, yeah, I was kind of under the radar a little bit being in a smaller than major school, but, I didn't want to let that uh, affect my style of play and how uh, I wanted to help the team win. So, I mean, things worked out. I was able to get some attention from some scouts and stuff. But, I mean, it was just kind of going out there every day and trying to help the team win and uh, good things happen. Mm. And at what point did you feel like the draft was a real possibility for you? Because, you know, you weren't – I don't think you were drafted at, coming out of high school. But then as a freshman – No, I wasn't. Yeah, so – Coming out of high school as a freshman, you hit 332 for a D1 program. I think that's going to put you on the map no matter what. Um, but at what point did you think, like, hey, this not only am I just going to be drafted maybe after my junior year, but I'm going to be a prominent pick? Yeah, um, I would say after my experience in Cape Cod League, you know, uh, trying to the same thing, start off slow, but, you know, it's a pretty premier collegiate league and you have all those scouts out there. And, so I thought I was able to kind of show my attributes out there. I thought I played pretty well. And, uh, you know, you start hearing some things and you get on social media and you start seeing some things. So that kind of let a spark on me, uh, kind of let me know that I'm going to kind of follow this profession and definitely kind of fueled me for uh, my sophomore and junior year to be a premier pick and try to be a, a top player. Mm. And this might be just a question for me. I'm, I grew up in Massachusetts. I used to go to Cape League games. I used to go to the Cape League All-Star game every year. You played for Bourne. <laughs> what was your favorite moment on the Cape? What, what was something that you would take away from that summer of 2017? I mean, it was, it was definitely eye-opening. Uh, I would say the players. I mean, you kind of hear about these big-name players coming out of these, these bigger schools and, you know, moving kind of a smaller, smaller guy. Uh, it's kind of cool to, to be – being able to compete with these guys and knowing that uh, you're on the same level as them definitely was eye-opening and uh, a great experience. Hmm. And, and talk about you know you being a smaller guy. You're listed at five foot nine. Uh, everybody talks about your smooth left-handed stroke, and that's one thing that stands out with you. But uh, how were you able to develop that? What was something you were doing, even in your high school days, in your college days, Cape days, whatever? Um, that's allowed you to become such a smooth swinger from the left side and show guys that, hey, I, I'm not just a small guy. I'm, I've got the stick uh, to make it here in pro ball. Yeah, I'd definitely say uh, my college coach at DBU, Coach Heathner, definitely helped me uh, progress my swing into, as you say, the smooth, compact swing. And, you know, uh, just kind of being effortless definitely, uh, definitely helps. But, I mean, I try not to try not to glorify myself that much and like I said try to uh, just see how I play and let that determine things hmm. yeah and, and when you talk about how you play how would you describe your offensive approach being somebody you know normally going to be at the top of the lineup a lot of people project you to be potentially a leadoff hitter a number two hitter uh, what are you looking to do when you get up there yeah definitely uh I can say I'm not the, the biggest guy out there, so I'm not going to try and hit a 450 foot home run. But, you know, being the leadoff guy or two old guy, I like to try to see a couple pitches and uh, see how this this guy's going to work me. And uh, also, I don't want to be too timid at the plate. You know, I want to be aggressive and kind of, if I get that pitch, don't miss it. So, I mean, that's where, uh, like you said, the, the smooth, easy swing kind of comes in because I want to make sure that. Once I get that pitch, I don't, I don't want to miss it. I want to be able to get on base and provide for the team. Hmm. And did the Reds 
in your discussions with either coaches at Daytona yet or maybe somebody in player development, did they explain to you or, or tell you what they liked most about your game and what they wanted you to kind of exploit when you're out there now that you're a part of that, that organization? Uh, not necessarily. They just kind of just like the way I play the game, you know. It's just a matter of being the best player I can be. And uh, I, I bring a, a good hit tool to the field, but also I like to pride my defense, so – just being being good on both sides of the ball definitely helped me, I guess. Hmm. And, and these first couple of games, I think tonight you played right field, and that was for the first time in the, the FSL. You mostly played center field so far. You were splitting time in Stockton. I, I know that was kind of a loaded outfield out there, but have the Reds given you any indication that they intend you to play more center, or are you prepared to switch positions all over again here uh, with the Tortugas? Well, I mean, I like to think I'm a center fielder, so I'm I'm the attack every little center field. But it's just a matter of uh, where the coaches put me in the lineup, and I'm going out there and uh, do the best job I can out there. So, I mean, I'm comfortable in all three positions, but I primarily like to be in center. But I mean, like I said, it's it's really up to the coaches, and I'll, I'll go out there and do the job. Mm. And I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I still want to ask it anyways. Uh, why would you prefer to play center? Why, why is that the position you feel like you would be best geared towards or you are most excited about? Uh, I like I think I get uh, good reads out there, you know. So uh, center is one of the premier positions on the field. So being able to probably a little on the outfield and get great jumps and kind of save some runs is definitely a big part of the game. So I definitely like that role. And you are any scouting report that you read about you is that you are a plus runner. I always like asking guys this question. When did you know you were fast? Not only just fast of like fastest kid in your neighborhood or fastest kid in your school, fast enough that you were going to be good enough, you know, fast enough at college ball, fast enough at pro ball. When did that lock in of like, this is my most dangerous uh, tool? I'd say in high school. I mean, um, definitely being able to use your legs helps, and uh, I feel like that kind of helped me uh, get that that scholarship at DU and and so forth. So I feel like that's when I first kind of realized that was in my high school days, and after that, I kind of let my legs uh, lead the way. And how did you develop that? Did you do other sports, or were you just a, a burner on the base pass? I mean, how did your speed develop? I feel like it's just a natural gift, you know. I, I played a little bit of football growing up. I played a little bit of everything. But, you know, I, it's just one thing that I feel like has kind of stuck with me my entire life. And I'm um, just – it's a great tool to have. Hmm. No, for sure. That's that's always one of those carrying tools uh, for any player. All right, Jameson, we'll, we'll end on this one. Uh, I usually like to ask guys who have just been traded, you are introducing yourself to a new organization, to a new fan base even. Uh, as Reds fans and, and members of the Reds organization get to know you over these last couple of weeks of the 2019 season, what do you hope they learn about you? What what type of player uh, do they hope do you hope they see you as as they get to know you more? Yeah, I definitely want to tell uh, Reds Nation out there that uh, I'm the type of player that's going to show up to the ballpark every day and give 110. percent So, I mean, uh, things may not work out the way I intend them to, but. Just know that the effort and uh, the attitude is going to be there. So I'm happy to be a part of this organization and I'm ready to see uh, how far this, this place takes me. Hmm. And, and to take that one kind of step further, is there any player past or present or anybody you've played with that you kind of model your game after? I uh, definitely, I wouldn't say model, but I really like the way uh, Ken Griffey Jr. played. You know, he's the kid. One of the best baseball players ever. So I, I try to try to model my swing after them, but you know, just having that in the back of my mind definitely helps. I think a lot of people in Cincinnati just got excited that you mentioned Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, <laughs> exactly for for many many reasons. But all right, Jameson Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, congrats on all the success so far, and good luck going forward there with the Reds and uh, Daytona the last couple of weeks of 2019. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Benjamin Hill joins the show to discuss a, a story that I just took a look at the photo at the top of it, and now I'm starving. Hi, Ben. 
Hello, Tyler. I'm here to make you hungry. Hello, Sam. Uh, I'm here to make you hungry as well. I'm here to spread hunger throughout the land. Well, that is obviously working. The uh, latest on the road column is from uh, Las Vegas ballpark where Sam and uh, our good buddy Josh Jackson got a chance to visit. Ben went. Sam? I didn't go anywhere. Can I say Sam? You ben. Did. Yeah. And uh, the hunger, it's doing things to me. It's making me mix up names and everything. Um, ben and Josh were in Vegas and then we're in Fresno. We talked about that last week, but the story, the on the road story this week um, about uh, the Las Vegas ballpark can sessions and the picture alone includes uh burnt end burritos burnt ends are like my favorite things in barbecue um branded bun burgers you can get a burger that has the las vegas ballpark logo branded onto the top of it and nachos i don't know what the what the sauce is or what this cheese concoction is on top of these nachos but good lord all this looks amazing yeah, those are, you know, that photo's cropped, and uh, you can read the story for all the nacho ingredients, but um, those are helmet nachos for one, full-size helmet nachos, and two, they were uh, kind of a, a Mexican corn-style elote nachos mm. with, like, crema, jalapenos, corn, um, and what have you, uh, different types of cheese. Uh, really good stuff. Yeah, so this is a story about Las Vegas ballpark food. Uh, I got so much material on the food over the course of two days. Um, you know, I already have split it into two stories. The first, I believe we already talked about, but how um, you know the team's basic approach to food was to partner with uh, chefs in Las Vegas to have them create ballpark food items uh, based on this whole you know minor league done major principle of really uh, capitalizing on Las Vegas' status as you know the hospitality capital of the world. So, you know, I talked a lot with Cody Malone, the team's food and beverage director. Uh, and this dude went all out in, uh, in, uh, you know, in trying to make this like a truly like spectacular food uh, situation. Uh, Cody Malone, you know, big guy. He's like six foot eight, and uh, you know, he looks like a chef. You know, a guy yeah. who who, uh, who, who uh, loves food, loves to eat, loves to talk about food. You know, super passionate about his job. There's a quote in the story about how, you know, he will travel to the ends of the earth to find the best food. And he says, uh, if I have to go <laughs> to the top of a mountain to get the best fish sandwich, I will go there. And uh, I was like, that'd be a weird place go to, to go. Go to the mountaintop because it's the best sandwich you're ever going to go through. Yeah, but he used fish sandwich as an example. I'm like, mountains <laughs> Mountains are usually pretty far from the sea, Cody. So it'd be kind of weird if you have to go to a mountaintop to get the best fish sandwich. But I love that quote just because I think it did speak to his passion and enthusiasm. So partnering with all these local chefs, I already did a story about Chef Brian Howard, who works at a you know Asian fusion restaurant, or not just works, but created an Asian fusion, um, you know Mediterranean, French, all kinds of influences at a, a, a very popular Las Vegas restaurant in the Chinatown neighborhood called Sparrow and Wolf. He uh, created his own line of hot dogs. I already did a whole separate spinoff story about those, about those hot dogs, and um, now on uh, in this story. Uh, just like an overall food scene uh, overview, uh, incorporating my designated eater for the night, Ben Sachs. But we talk about the burnt end burritos, not burnt end Doritos, although I'm surprised that's not a flavor at this point. Um, the burnt end burritos, which are uh, courtesy of a place called Barbecue Mexicana, which is a well-known spot uh, featuring well-known chefs and restaurateurs um, in the Vegas area. Uh, I actually ate at Barbecue Mexicana like every day during the winter meetings last year, which are in Vegas. I and, did not uh, get in on that. So no, I'm I, myself. It was very, very good. So the burnt end burritos or something, that was something that just throughout my stay in Vegas, people were like, Oh, did you write about the food? Are you? Did you write about the burnt end burritos? Like people are really, really big on those. Uh, the branded bun burgers, which they get from a, a partnership with a local bakery, and that's done through some uh, quote unquote top secret car uh, caramel caramelization process. I don't know how that works, but it's kind of weird to get branded buns and uh, you know have it be edible. Um, yeah, the nachos obviously spectacular. The full line of Chef Brian Howard's hot dogs. Um, and on and on and on uh, tacos from uh, Tacos Me Gusta, a famous or a well-known uh, taco place in, in Las Vegas, uh, patty melts, uh, on and on. So anyhow, minor league done major in Las Vegas. They really went all out on the food and uh, I've got a big story about it. Yeah, and this kind of ties into that theme for sure. But my question more about it just, when, the, when the hospitality – uh, manager is talking about going to the ends of the earth and the mountaintops to get fish sandwiches and they're going all out with food and, and it seems like they went out with every aspect of the ballpark. How much do you feel like this is showing off 
the major league capabilities of Vegas because expansion has been a big topic in baseball the last couple of years. And Vegas is always one of the places that brought up alongside Charlotte and Portland and, you know, maybe going back to Montreal or something like that. Do you feel like the organization is trying to show major league readiness with even these like minute details? Uh, um, I think it's more the idea. I mean, yes, but I think it's more the idea that, um, you know, Vegas is already now a major league sports town or major, major sports town, you know, with the, uh, the Golden Knights, uh, their practice facility is, you know, right, right, just beyond, uh, you know, the left field side of uh, Las Vegas ballpark. Um, so Summerlin is already home to Golden Knights practice facility and this brand new AAA park. Obviously, the Raiders are moving to the NFL. Um, so I don't know if the Aviators specifically are saying, hey, we're auditioning for Major League. I think it's saying like we're already essentially Major League in terms of the type of city we are, the type of sporting entities that we're surrounded by and um, you know the type of ballpark we have already. So I think they're saying like we're not going to let any aspect of this operation slip. And, you know, it's run by the Howard Hughes Corporation, which is just generally a company that, you know, spares very few expense, you know, very little expense. And, you know, this ballpark was very expensive. The the amount spent on it, the estimates vary. I've seen anywhere between 100 and $150 million. But a lot more money went into this ballpark than most minor league ballparks. You know, things like on the, uh, on the second level, on the suites, there is a uh, – like a celebrity chef kitchen where celebrity chefs come and like take it over for the night and feed all the club level sweet uh, seat holders and the sweet holders and stuff like that. And I was talking to Cody Malone, you know, the food and beverage guy. And he's like, man, it's, it's just ridiculous how much money they were able to put into things like this, this like super tricked out public kitchen for celebrity chefs to cook in. So yeah, I think they're running as major league as they can. I think they do take a lot of pride in looking at Las Vegas as a major league city. And, um, you know, certainly want to be in the running, not the aviator specifically, but Las Vegas, I think, is doing everything it's, it, it can to solidify that reputation. Let's uh, discuss a uh, couple of new identities that have come out. Uh, that story, by the way, on the Vegas food is up at MILB.com and uh, on Ben's page, www.milb.com slash Ben's biz. And I will um, mention real quickly, Tyler, that uh, t- tomorrow or the Today, if the day this podcast comes out, uh, I'll have a full Las Vegas ballpark tour story, uh, along with a video made by uh, our colleague Josh Jackson. So, the is it narrated by Josh. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I want that. To happen. His yeah. tones are dull set. Josh and, is a uh, film, uh, some kind of film major. Um, so I'm hoping that this is going to be like Barney Gumble's uh, entrance. To <laughs> it will. The I think it'll be film festival. It'll be black think, and white. It'll be very French. I think it'll be Fellini esque. I think he's going to incorporate <laughs> some of his uh, Jean Pierre Melville influences. Maybe a little Herzog and Scorsese as well. The second like, act will take I a like turn. It. We weren't <laughs> yeah. Don't so, cry for me. I'm already dead. <laughs> exactly. So anyhow, just to say, keep an eye out for uh, a full overview of Las Vegas Ballpark appearing on the site t- Thursday, today. Uh, a couple new identities that uh, have been announced. One that has been uh, blown out to great fanfare so far, uh, and another one that we'll get to here in a minute as well. Uh, the Iowa caucuses, uh, the first such caucuses in the nation, uh, the state very well known for that, obviously. Um, and the Iowa Cubs, coming up on August 30th, will transform into the Iowa caucuses. That will be uh, their identity for the game. They announced a a logo, and they've got star-spangled uniforms and all that kind of stuff. The logo is uh, the state of Iowa and anthropomorphized, however you say it, state of Iowa with... uh, uh, Arms and legs and a face. Exactly. I love that he has a foam finger that has the number one on it. That cracks me up. Um, But this is kind of interesting because... Uh, New Hampshire has done this. New Hampshire, in fact, when that franchise was first announced, uh, they announced their plan to be named the New Hampshire primaries. We've talked about this before. They have since uh, just gone with that as an alternate identity. They are, of course, the Fisher Cats full time. But Iowa jumping on it now uh, with the caucuses. Yeah, this is a pretty cool one. It just announced uh, today and that the day we were speaking yesterday for those listening to this on the day the podcast comes out. Um you know, Iowa Cubs, have, you know, they're a team still ha- that still has, you know, the name of their parent club as a name and have generally been pretty conservative uh, as regards, uh, you know, current minor league baseball promotional trends. They did participate in Copa this year, so changed their name for that. And that was the first time they ever changed their names. This is their first kind of one-off uh, identity. 
and obviously, as uh, anyone knows, uh, politics is uh, very generally speaking, you want to stay away from um, in terms of minor league baseball promotions because, you know, hey, we all live in this country and, you know, like, what can you do politically that everyone's going to be like, hey, this is a good idea. It just, (laughs) we've learned, we've learned, uh, we've seen things in minor league baseball that exploded that uh, didn't go over well uh, and we see in the culture at large. So if you're going to do something political, it has to be something that everyone can get on board with. And uh, Iowa found something that everyone can get on board with, especially locally. Um, maybe not everyone can get on board with it nationally because they might think, why does Iowa have such a, a disproportionate influence in the electoral process? But if you're in Iowa, you're like, yeah, we're number one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? the reason why everybody comes here. Yeah, yeah. We've got all these uh, presidential hopefuls hanging out with us in diners and coming to our minor league baseball games. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden has already been to a Cubs game this year. And uh, what's his name? Beto, Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke has also been to a, an Iowa Cubs game. I always want to call him Beto. I, Beto. Be, Beto, Beto, I think. He, it is Beto. Right. It's yeah. Beto. Anyway, uh, so I think they're just taking they're, – they're celebrating their role in this – in the electoral process, uh, how you know the presidential the, – the, the road to being um, president you know, starts Iowa. And uh, – so it's a real cool identity, you know, an American identity. I think that uh, that will unite people on both sides of the aisle. And um, as Tyler mentioned, you know, you can't help if you know minor league baseball and you know this world. You can't help but think of uh, the New Hampshire primaries. Who, you know, they did announce that they were their name day in and day out was going to be the primaries. But this was a, a different world in minor league baseball. Now that name doesn't sound too too yeah, wild at all. Isn't that so funny? That sounds so normal now. But at the time, there wasn't a template for these non-traditional names. The uproar was swift. Now teams are uh, are like, oh yeah, the uproar, give it to us. You know, as long as you're talking about us, yeah. it's cool. But back then, it was a different time. The team was like, whoa, <laughs> I think we made the wrong decision, and switched to a vicious predator that makes uh, horrific killing noises in the night instead. The Fisher Cats. <laughs> I will say, Fisher Cat noises are frightening when you're in the middle of the field in new england yeah if you're listening to this podcast and you're near a computer well finish listening to the podcast but then just look up some fisher cat like oh, videos uh, they will terrify you but one thing now i know new hampshire's done this in the past when they like dabbled in the primaries bringing them back they've had like donkey hats and elephant hats right isn't that been a thing yeah i they, was not doing that whatsoever it's just one hat's yeah, yeah. New, New Hampshire did have a vote on whether they wore, I think, a donkey or an elephant at one point. Right. Uh, for one of their alternate identity nights. No, there's just the one logo here. Um, I think the team will probably do some interesting stuff as regards maybe you know voter registration uh, and trying to get people involved. You know, just in the democratic process, no matter what side of the fence you're on. I plan on covering this closer to the date once the details are fleshed out and the game itself is on august 30th and it's a cool logo and i imagine one that's going to appeal to people outside of iowa just because it's an anthropomorphized state exactly (laughs) um there's another identity that was announced uh yesterday tuesday of this week and um actually is kind of flown under the radar even in terms of like the things that you can find online about it so far but the uh the Pawtucket Red Sox are going to become the Pawtucket Fighting Cohogs for a game uh later this month which I will be fully honest I thought was just the name of the town and family guy evidently it's an edible clam um, which is found uh, on the Atlantic coast. And uh, this one has been a much quieter release, but uh, it kind of falls in line with, you know, all the, the food-themed identities that we've seen in recent seasons across the minors as well. Yeah, I mean, one worth mentioning, but yeah, we, uh, we as of yet do not have much information on this, uh, what the team plans to do with it. Sam, not to put you on the spot, but, you know, anything that's remotely New England, I'm like, Sam will know about Yeah, it. no, I mean, quahogs are not something I necessarily grew up with. Um, fried clams are my thing, but um, yeah, I mean, Quahog is definitely, there's a reason why Family Guy named a town after these. It is a very Rhode Island concept. Uh, even the hat, I will say, looks Family Guy-esque. Yeah, it does. It has a very uh, Peter Griffin look to it. Right. It's got like the eyes to it. It's definitely a clam with a bat and some arms and wearing a Pawtucket hat. Um, so, they, But they, I think they're trying to tap into something here. Like the confusion of you, Tyler, and other people out there who are just like, the fighting Cohogs, that just sounds like what the uh, you know, the team name was. 
yeah. for where the Griffins lived. And maybe you'll buy the hat that says Fighting Coogs if you've been a big Family Guy fan. But if you're a Rhode Islander, uh, an Ocean Stater, you might have some pride in the fact that the Coogs is really only a Rhode Island thing. It's not taken other places in New England. So uh, I think this is trying to tap into multiple markets in kind of the same way Iowa is. And that if you are you know, a proud Iowan, you'll, you'll buy the hat because it's got your state on it. But also if you're just a political junkie, you'll like the hat too. Um, so I, I think that's it, it's more than just a regionalized thing. Um, but we'll have to see exactly what else they're going to do with it. I wonder if Family Guy might try to get involved somehow or if they'll more directly allude to it than they have so far. So you can check out uh, all that stuff uh, later on this month in person if you're in Iowa slash Pawtucket and uh, all the Ben stuff as well on the site, MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, Ben, final month of the season. Do you have any more trips coming up? You know, I didn't have one scheduled and I still don't have one official, but I I put something together yesterday, you know, fairly modest, but, you know, with some reasons behind it. And uh, I'll probably talk about that next week, and it'll be later in the month. But I want to get out there one more time, because as much as it exhausts me and as much as I still have a lot of material from my previous trip, this is a very short window in which to uh, operate in such a manner. So, you know, let's get out there. I, I feel like get we should just there. tease it and say everybody should get out to their closest Meyer League Park and see if you're there that night. Yeah, that's true. That's we won't true. tell people where you go this For time. the remainder of the season, go to a minor league park closest to you. Assuming Ben will be there. Yeah, yeah. assuming I'll be there, and there'll be a – small but you know possible chance <laughs> we'll just put it that way he is benjamin hill you can find him on twitter at ben's biz and again the site milb.com slash ben's biz and uh ben we'll talk to you next week you will and i in turn will talk to you Getting set to wrap up this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV is your place to catch uh, the final month of the regular season in minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV this week? Yeah, so we brought up Forrest Whitley in the first segment of the show, and I'm going to bring things back around to him. Uh, He last pitched on Sunday at home against Midland for AA Corpus Christi. Uh, I expect he'll – we don't have probable pitchers yet to see when he'll go next, but he'll probably be going over the weekend maybe as early as Friday, um, more likely Saturday or Sunday, I would think. But if that happens, if he falls within those three days, he'll be playing against Midland again, which I think is going to be a good test for him because Midland will have just seen him. They're going to be – you know, th- that'll be a good test for his stuff is, okay, yeah, he can do – do well against the team once what happens when they see him again uh, and and that quickly um, so that, that'll be a good test for him before I feel like as I mentioned before the inevitable pushback to AAA um, so yeah you're going to want to watch Forrest Whitley's starts the rest of the way regardless of where he's pitching um, but there is a little bit of intrigue there if he is facing the Rockhounds for the second time in a week um, that should be pretty exciting and if he does well there against the same crew against guys who knows what he had who know what he has uh that'll be really cool and and that i think will push his his move back to triple a round rock uh tyler what do you got your eye on yeah the san diego padres uh promoted their 2019 first round pick cj abrams from the uh rookie level arizona league to class a fort wayne this week uh 32 games in the azl cj batted 401 442 662 uh pretty good numbers so abrams is up now uh in the midwest league the fort wayne tin caps are at home uh until friday taking on the Dayton Dragons and then over the weekend they'll be on the road at South Bend all those games are on MILB.TV you can get a chance to check out the sixth overall pick in the 2019 Major League Draft as C.J. Abrams has made the jump to full season Class A and that uh, will wrap it up for this week's episode of the show before the show Uh, thanks for tuning in you can find us uh, on Twitter Sam's at Sam Dykstra MILB I am at Tyler Mon you can email the show questions thoughts comments concerns whatever you have podcast at MILB.com and until next week he's Sam I'm Tyler We'll talk to you then.